Welcome back to the Collector's Quest Podcast. This is a special episode. It is Collector's Edition number one. So what is Collector's Edition? What does that mean if you see that in the title? What that means is we're doing special interviews with collectors outside of the realm of video games. And I know that this is a video game driven podcast, but if we look at other collectors, we see that we probably share a lot of things in common with them. And we can also see what we can learn from them. It's also nice just to go outside of your own sphere and see what other people are doing and let that kind of inform you. So stick around. We got a really good episode. We are talking to Carly, a.k.a. All the Pretty Books on Instagram. She has a large collection of Harry Potter books. And she's going to tell us all about that. And there's a whole world around book collecting and then very specifically Harry Potter book collecting that I found fascinating as a fan of just the series. but. Also, seeing how people interact and collect with it, the way we enact our nostalgia with video games, the way they enact theirs with books, and then, you know, how they value things. Uh, Anyways, you'll get to hear about all that in the episode. This is part of my three-year, I wanted to do something new, kind of branch out. Again, this is an interview, so the audio is a little bit mixed here. So, when we get back to just normal video game stuff, hopefully you guys enjoy this and you enjoy hearing about something else. We will be back to our regular video game stuff after this, so don't worry about it. If Anyway, it's fascinating to talk to collectors, and that's part of why we do this, and to see this quest or this journey that we're all on together, and it's interesting to explore that. So I hope you guys like it. Uh, Carly was really generous with her time. We had a lot of fun, and I learned a whole lot, and I hope you guys do too. If you like what we're doing and you want to see more stuff like this, please go ahead and give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts because you know that helps us the most. And if you're new and you're coming from the Harry Potter world, thank you. And uh, I hope you kind of enjoy our format here and what we do. Thanks a lot. One more thing. After this episode, please get in contact with me and let me know what you thought. Give me some critiques, what you'd like to see, what we could have done a little bit better on this type of stuff, and what kind of collectors you would like me to maybe talk to if I can get a hold of them. So that would be really helpful. Again, this is something new for us, so bear that in mind as you go through. Stay tuned. back to another edition of the collector's quest podcast except this is a different kind of episode as i kind of explained in the bumper it's our three-year anniversary so i'm doing a few different things and this is me stepping outside the realm of just talking to video game collectors i want to identify collectors of other hobbies that are big collectors there and are very knowledgeable and then have them kind of come and teach us and so today i have what i'm really excited for it's our first one And I have someone who is a a large collector of Harry Potter books, but we'll let her tell you about that. Hello, Carly. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you for taking the time to teach us about your hobby. Hello. So I I guess the first thing you can do is kind of give us more specifically than my generalization. Just tell us about your hobby. I collect Harry Potter books, essentially. Okay, just Harry Potter books in general? 
Yeah, I collect the rare Harry Potter books, some signed Harry Potter books, as well as translations of the Harry Potter books. Okay, and how long has this hobby been around? Um, I would say it's very, I would say very uh, shortly after Harry Potter started to get big. People started to read the books, they liked the books, and they wanted to own the books. They wanted to collect them. Okay, so this this isn't, I mean, it's new in the terms of, like, say, coin collecting or something, but specifically Harry Potter, it, it's been around for a little while. So it, it's not like it just started a week ago and there's only, like, seven of you doing it. It's an established <laughs> collecting community. Correct. All right. Uh, before we go on a little bit, I want to just get a few questions about you. If you would just tell us a little bit about yourself, like, uh, for instance, what do you do in your real life? Because unless collecting is also paying the bills, and which, kudos to you if that's true. I own a medical massage clinic. Okay. And um, now, is that what you went to school for? I mean, clearly you had to go to school for that, but that was that all of your educational background? No, I have a bachelor's degree in uh, French language and literature, master's degree in linguistics, and then I have my MBA. Oh, that's, uh, that's pretty impressive credentials. So because of the linguistic studies, and you said you collect translations, does that inform the way you collect or does that influence how you collect? Absolutely. I was very late to coming to translation collecting, I know, which is kind of silly, I guess. But my heart was really with the rare and the signed things because that's what got my attention first. But one of the languages that I studied so heavily in my master's program was Breton, which is a language in the Brittany region of France. It's a Celtic language. And there's a Breton translation of Harry Potter. And I was, I just had to own it. And then from there, I had to have them all. Okay. So it's a Celtic region in France. I want to hear about Harry Potter stuff, but I've never <laughs> heard of Breton before. Like a small language? Yeah. It is a smaller speaker base and it's dying. Essentially, it's, in 1950, or it's on its way out, I should say. In 1950, there were about a million speakers. And now there's probably closer to 200,000 and it's not being spoken or really learned by the newer generations. While there are schools and they're doing things, if you go to Facebook, you can see Breton as a language you can put in Facebook, but it's still not being transmitted as much as a healthy language should be in order to sustain itself. Just inform me here because this is I'm totally new to me. Is Breton like French? It's not a dialect. It's its own thing? No, it's its own language. It's a Celtic language. It's going to be similar to like Manx or Cornish. Welsh, it's not going to be as similar to, but that's also a Celtic language. So we have a Celtic language in France? That seems weird. We do, but it immigrated over in the mid in medieval times. Oh, okay. And it just stayed, and the French government doesn't really like to acknowledge any other language other than French. They've had to fight for their little, little piece. Huh. Okay, <laughs> before I drag us down the rabbit hole of <laughs> uh, Breton, uh, let me refocus this here. Uh, okay, so... You said you came late to collecting translations, but how long have you been collecting Harry Potter? And I started collecting, well, it's kind of a, I've always been a collector. I've collected things. I've collected briar horses, which is a type of horse, um, like cast model since I was very tiny. Then Madame Alexander dolls that I bought and sold them to make my car payment in high school. And I've just always been a collector, I guess. And then I went to grad school for linguistics, and I was a part of a history of the book club, where we got to make paper, we bound books, we looked at archives, I got to see some really, I got to see 3,000-year-old papyrus, I got to see a page from, you know, the Bible of Mainz, which is a Gutenberg-type Bible with illuminated manuscript, that was fascinating. And then 
shortly after I graduated, I decided I was going to collect Tennyson, like variations of Tennyson's Lady of Shalott, for whatever reason, I'm not sure. And then from there, I decided it didn't like that. And I jumped over to collecting screen-used Harry Potter movie props. And I did that for about six months to a year and realized that I kept trying to buy the books. So why not just do the books? And that was probably 2009, 2010, maybe a little earlier. Okay, so... 2009, 2010. So you're, you're approaching about 10 years in your hobby right now. Yes. It's a pretty long time to be collecting. And, and before I dive any further into that, you said we're at first collecting the expensive stuff and then got into translations. How was that, the transition? Like, what made you go from saying, I'm going to collect top shelf stuff to I'm going to collect this whole world of translations? Not that translations, and you can inform us, translations probably also can be very expensive and top shelf as well. Correct. It was honestly Breton. One of my friends, um, Peter the Potter Collector, he's been my friend for as long as I've doing done Harry Potter collecting. He was collecting the translations and he showed me this Breton one and oh my goodness, I had to have it. And then from there, I just made the leap. And I'm such a collector that I can't just have a Breton translation and call it good. From there, I bought Lithuanian and Russian and Greek and of course, Breton and Afrikaans and Mandarin Chinese and Taiwanese and French and on down the line. Well, that that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I think that's that's how a lot of collector brains operate, and that's kind of where I want to go into our into our next questions before we go a little further. So I want to ask you about collecting in general and see what applies to your guys's fandom as well as my audience's fandom. And you said it yourself. So and that is always my theory. I tell people this: you are either born being a collector or you probably aren't. Sure, people make the leap, but collector brain starts early, and it's either on or it's off. So you you find that to be the same for you? Oh, yeah. Well, my grandmother was a collector of rare glass on my mom's side. So my first time at an antique shop, I was three days old. I would travel around during my summer breaks doing antique shows with my grandparents since I was like seven. Wow. So it's how I've you've grown been immersed. Up. Yeah, it's how I grew up. I, I've collected all sorts of different things because I've been exposed to so many different things. And I learned very early how to have an eye for the market and, you know, tell about value and things like that. I've, I've just grown up knowing it, I guess. Okay. And now would you, and it's hard to speak for everyone, would you say that you've found this to be mostly true of them as well? or? Yeah. And I would say that holds like, that collector mindset holds true for pretty much anybody that I know that's collected anything, whether it be my grandparents, they had fine carnival glass collections that they would build up and they had to get, you know, certain series or certain sets, certain marks, whatever it was they were collecting, but they had to get them. Okay. This is something that is is more widespread. It's not collecting as itself. And, you know, one of the things I say is besides the mentality, it's almost almost like a sickness, the, the way it is. It's it's a pervasive element to people's lives and, and how they enact behaviors. I don't want to get into the whole psychology of it, but I do find that that is a, a little bit there. You can see the psychology of collectors through all hobbies, I think. Yes. Yes, you can. All right. Uh, so how did you start collecting Harry Potter books specifically? So, I mean, you said you went from screen props and stuff, but what was that trigger where you went from? Because it sounded like you liked books before and then kind of went to props and then discovered Harry Potter books again. But like, what was that switch for you where you said, oh, I'm just doing the books? Was it the Breton edition or was it something else before that that got you 
said, oh, I, I've changed my mind on what I'm doing. I'm going to books now. It's funny how you remember these aha moments in your life. And that's definitely mine. Breton came a lot later. Breton was 2015. This is back in 2008, nine. And I was looking at eBay, you know, looking for props and things. And I really, there's so much crap that I was just, you know, wading through things. And I saw somebody selling um, this Harry Potter Sorcerer's Stone book for $3,000. And I scoffed and was like, I have one just like it. What's their problem? And I looked and mine wasn't the same. It was so totally different. They had like this super cool first print, first edition that I didn't have. And then from there, I was like, I must own that. And then from there is like, I want to have all of, I didn't know much outside of, you know, the U.S. Harry Potter books at the time, but I wanted all seven in that first print format, which is the first time it was ever available in print to the public. Okay. You know, I've been tempted on that myself. Uh, and I think a lot of collectors, they, they get that way. The very first, that's a very specific uh, goal for a lot of collectors. But before we go there. And this is something I want to touch on. It's because it's really relevant for me. But you told me in our pre-talk that you consider yourself to be more than a book collector, um, like an art collector and a text block collector. So can can you tell me what that means? Right. So it's more evident in like the translation. So when they were translating Harry Potter, they just had like we did. They just had that book. Um, so there were a lot of text block errors, especially in certain languages that require gender, like. German, French, Italian, Romanian to make things. So you weren't necessarily sure. The translator had to kind of improvise quite a bit on certain things and it can screw with the meaning of how things work. So if I want the first text block, it's going to have these errors in the text, if that makes sense. Sure. The typos and things like that. And then the text block is, of course, the printed book. And then I go through and I they've revised it. So I'll buy the revised ones as well. So that way I have all forms of the text block that I can. Um, and then as far as art, there's so many wonderful covers for Harry Potter, as well as internal illustrations. So, you know, it's such a pretty thing to collect. The colors are so vibrant in most cases. They're so bold. They're so pretty. And they are, to me, they just look like jelly beans. All of these Harry Potter books are so bright. They just look, I look like a pile of jelly beans to me on my shelves. Hold on. So you said there's different illustrations. I mean, I understand that there's different covers, but like all the internal illustrations are different as well. Yeah. Um, for the U.S. books, Mary Grand Prey did the internals. Um, but, you know, for like the French books, only French books print, only like the French um, Philosopher's Stone translation, book one, book two. The first couple prints of those have these wonderful internal illustrations by this different artist than the cover artist. And it's only in, you know, those first two prints. How cool is that? And they're wonderful. They're just at the head of the chapter in most cases. That is very nice. Are they full page illustrations or just like that over the chapter art? In most cases, it's over the chapter. Um, if you're looking at like the Czech, the early Czech translation, the first three have these wonderful mats on the paste downs, which is that first page when you open the book and it's glued down to that board, the front, the front okay. cover. That's the pace down, and it's a full page between that and the next sheet over. And it's a map of the Hogwarts grounds. You can see Hogsmeade, the castle, the lake, all this stuff. And then throughout the book, they have these wonderful full page illustrations Harry's letter to Hogwarts, Dumbledore writing, you know, Minerva, and all, just throughout the book. And it's wonderful. And you get, you lose those in, in the later prints. Okay. Wow. So 
uh, you can literally just go through, like, for each one you buy, you just collect a, a different series of art uh, for each book you're getting. Yeah, like, the Czech translation has a completely different... The first three... The first two editions of the Czech translation of Philosopher's Stone, book one, have different illustrators than the third edition. The third edition has the same cover as the U.S. Okay. And so... And it, it's a little bit different internally. They took out some of the illustrations that are in the first two editions of the Czech. Um, and the cover art is so vastly different between the two. The Harry Potter books are, there's a vast array. And for anyone listening, if you're right, right here, it's a good time to do a Google image search or go to alltheprettybooks.net and take a look. That's uh, that's our, our guest here's website where she has lots of pictures of these books. And you can see some of the different art on these books. It's amazing. And then come back to this or browse that while, while you're listening. If you like Harry Potter or if you're just interested in the art, it's an interesting thing just to see that. That resonates with me because I know a lot of times for me, I, I'm collecting as much as I love these games. I love some of the, the box art. And there's many people who are very just dedicated to that. So we also share that. For you guys in your collecting, do you guys get any flack? Are you guys okay just buying a book like that you can't read and just saying, I bought this for the art and, you know, just putting it on a shelf and calling it good. I'm fine with it. <laughs> I mean, like, do you have like pushback in your community? Like, oh, I really needed this rare Russian copy and I read Russian, but you've just taken it out because you're an art collector. Did you guys get any pushback on that or are people okay with it? Is that just the nature of the hobby? That, well, it's the nature of any collecting hobby. If you collect something and it's going in your collection, it's up, it's out of circulation. But there's ways around it. Like we can make a PDF copy. We can scan it in some instances unless it's fine and I'm not going to break the spine. Um, but for the most part, there's ways around it. Okay. So I'm not, it's not something I'm too terribly worried about. Um, some of these, like even if it's a rare Russian copy, it's not rare because of the text block or what's printed inside. It's rare because of the cover. So they have access to the same text in a much more common form. Yeah, so what you're saying is with Harry Potter books, and I mean, this had to be kind of obvious for everyone, but they are not the hardest thing in the world to obtain if you want to consume a Harry Potter book, even in different languages. In most cases, like some of the translations, like Astorian, for example, that's 700 printed, that's confirmed by the publisher. So that's a really hot commodity. It's really hard to find. It's considered, quote unquote, one of the big six. Uh, hardest translations to find so that's like one of our grail, grail translations is you know having that is really cool and you know if you take that out of circulation that's the historian language but most people who speak historian also speak spanish and there's millions of those so th they still have access to the story yeah that's it, it's still available and are there like ebooks versions of that language or is it like literally only a print version for something like a story no there is it's actually i found it on google book it's online i don't know if it's the full book but it, you can find it there, there are these digital copies that are kind of just out there if, if that's something you need right yeah that, that makes sense as we've been talking we've already talked about several different languages and this again back to just collector types in general are you guys an organized bunch? Are you very organized, particularly meticulous? For us, we get a lot of people, myself, you know, you get a little OCD going on amongst these collector's types. And uh, sometimes we see personalities like that in the hobby that take up like a large chunk, especially with large collections. 
Um, is that something you guys have as well or no? That's a big question. We have all, well, yeah, we have I mean, all sorts. And it's a generalization. I mean, we have all sorts of diff- of collectors. I have big, for me personally, I have spreadsheets. That's how I organize what I have. If that's so what you're asking. So lots of lists? Oh, yeah. yeah. Are you guys meticulous list makers? In your hobby, are there a lot of lists? So, yeah. When I think about book collecting, you know, I think of libraries. Obviously, it was the first OCD collecting message. They created a Dewey Decimal system in which to catalog and organize <laughs> books. You know, it yeah. was, they, they made up their own thing to specifically organize things, which is wonderful to me. As a child, I'm like, oh, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. How else would you find things? <laughs> so as someone who makes a lot of lists, I, I can appreciate a system. Yes. Um, and it seems like for people who collect books, it's probably something they're already kind of embedded in. So that's why I was just wondering if, if, you got, if you find that you get a lot of list makers in your hobby. I don't know anybody who's not one, knowingly. Okay. I mean, everybody I know, it's like, oh, I've got to see if it's on the list, you know. And sometimes, like, I need to actually go through and update my database because I've gotten a, a, quite a few things recently that I need to just take off. But I don't know anybody who doesn't have some, even if it's just a handwritten blah, I need, you know, these couple books. I don't know anybody who doesn't do something. Okay, yeah. And that's uh, that. That's one of the plight of collectors is keeping all those lists up to date, especially if you go somewhere and you buy in like bulk, you get more than like five things. And then then you've got like, a, like for me, when I do that, I might have to update like five or six lists and it becomes a bit of a chore. Yes, yes, yes. I know this is Harry Potter book collecting. Some hobbies I find that they get very, very protective of what they're called. But this is, it's fair to call this just an offshoot of book collecting, correct? Yeah. And now, is there anything like outside of just regular book collecting that makes this unique? I mean, aside from it being, we specifically collect Harry Potter. Is there anything about this or is it all just kind of uh, falls within the columns of book collecting? I would say the age group of the Harry Potter book collectors that I met is very different from what I've met out of book dealers, book collectors in general. Although, you know, and I, I, I know other book collectors who are somewhat younger, but for the most part, they're also Harry Potter book collectors. So I'm not sure where that overlay is, I guess, but it seems like, I mean, I know eight year olds, 11 year olds who collect, I know 70 year olds who collect Harry Potter books. It really seems to span everything. Whereas in my past experience with book collectors, for the most part, of other books or other authors was an older group. Okay. Yeah, and that, that's kind of what I was wondering. Because for me, when I think about book collecting, I think of old people. And no offense to old people, I'm getting to be one myself. <laughs> uh, but, I, you know, I, I think of, you know, dusty old tomes and dusty old people. And, and that's fine. <laughs> um, and I, I, don't, I don't begrudge them that. I hope to be that one day. Uh, but that's just where my mind goes. But then I see... When I was uh, starting to look into this uh, before talking to you, I noticed a bunch of young people, which was kind of contrary to my expectation. Correct. Yeah, there's a, and there's a bunch of us. And we have people who do, you know, like job-wise, it doesn't really fit into one demographic. I know someone who is a very avid Harry Potter book collector who's getting his PhD in marine biology. Somebody else is blind and he's a web developer. So I know someone else who is a teacher, has a PhD in poetry, somebody else makes fountains, somebody else, you know, is a teacher. It's just, it runs the gamut. It's everybody. Yeah, I mean, as as I would expect. I, I mean, I imagine that people love Harry Potter and people love Harry Potter from all over the place. Yes. I, I know this is uh, a thing. 
ancillary books uh, because J.K. Rowling, it's like, okay, there's Harry Potter books. You collect Harry Potter books, but there's all this other stuff associated with Harry Potter books that just aren't Harry Potter books. You've got the Cursed Child scripts. You've got the Robert Galbraith novels, which is Joe under a pen name. You've got like History of Magic and you've got the illustrated editions. You know, uh, here's the book of magical creatures, not anything to do with the books, but just movie screenshots. Do you collect these as well? I collect the illustrated editions because Jim Kay, who is the illustrator, his work is fantastic. I, he's incredible. And I have both US and UK versions of that because I, I'm weird and I have to. Okay. And then I have the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. That movie just came out. That book has gone through many different stages. It's had, you know, things added to be more in line with the movie. So I collect, you know, I've got those in all of their forms, which isn't much right now. I don't care about Cursed Child one iota. I've been told it's a wonderful thing to see, but I'm not going to buy the script or read it. To be clear, my opinion of Cursed Child is don't read it. But if you do have the opportunity to see it, do see it. Because it, it, whether you consider it canon or not, or if you care, it's just a wonderful stage play. Uh, that's kind of off topic. But yeah, so. A beautiful play to see. Are, are there people who tries to collect all of this stuff, or is it fairly cut and dry? We collect the books, the Core Seven, and and offshoots of the Core Seven, like illustrated editions, new covers, but things like the history of magic and uh, from screen to film. We don't care about that stuff. That's off to the right, and we we're ignoring it. Or do you know of people trying to do it all? I know people trying to do it all in different ways. Like all is in all of the merchandise. Plus the illustrated, plus the ancillary books, and just the core, like one through seven Canadian, because this person's Canadian, one through seven Canadian editions that, you know, they don't care about print. They just want it to be of the same edition and that then they're doing like keychains and, and you know, lanyards, Funko Pop, that kind of stuff. Wall decoration stuff. Did you? Say, is there a Canadian edition of Harry Potter? Yes, it's published by Raincoast, and it has the same cover art as the UK. So there's a lot of confusion over that, actually. That's that's weird that it didn't like. I, this happens uh, to us as well, but like I would just assume that would you'd have a North American copy, and that would kind of be the one that comes over, uh, minus ones from Mexico because you obviously need to translate the language, and then some in like Quebec or whatever, which might get like a French translation. But that that's funny to me that they Canada just specifically has its own print. Canada has its own. They have the UK text block. The US book, especially book one, Sorcerer's Stone, is an adaptation of Philosopher's Stone, which is the first book printed. And so we adapted it because the US publisher, Arthur Levine Scholastic, did not think that US children would understand what a Philosopher's Stone was. So they made it Sorcerer's Stone so they knew it was about witchcraft. And they changed words like jumper to sweater and stuff along those lines because it's not our vocabulary. Yeah, hose pipe and sprinklers and things like that. Right. Just an aside here. Are you on Team Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone? Team Philosopher's Stone. Oh, see, I'm Sorcerer's Stone. Aside from just my nostalgia, after hearing the reasoning of why it's changed, I kind of agree. I, I think if, if you had told me Philosopher's Stone, even as an adult who understood that, I would have been like, that doesn't, Philosopher's Stone doesn't sound that magical to me. Yeah, but I'm Team Philosopher's Stone because that was the first print, of, that was the first time it appeared in public. So if it had been Sorcerer's Stone, I would have been Team Sorcerer's Stone. It's just because it's what first appeared. Yeah, see, I, I think if I was collecting it, I would definitely be Team Philosopher's Stone because I would want a first edition, first print. 
of that. I would want it to say that specifically, because that was the first thing, not not the one that came to America. So I can get that. But I think as someone who just consumes it as a hobbyist, or, you know, as a as a very light hobbyist, I, I think I like Sorcerer's Stone better. Anyways, that was just a quick aside there. So uh, you talked a little bit about this just a second ago, but do you guys pick up other stuff too, other merchandising? I mean, it happens to all of us. I got like Mario shirts and stuff. I've got a I've got various Zelda stuff, and that happens to you guys in Harry Potter. You're just repping your fandom all over the place. Yeah, yeah. I said originally I wasn't going to collect the Funko Pop, and then somehow I have a lot. <laughs> so I've had to be careful about which ones I collect because I'm not going to just go out of control with those. I have to remind myself I'd rather buy a book. <laughs> well, that it's funny you said that because one of the, the things I, I coach people on in the podcast we did an episode specifically. This is what you're wasting your money on. You could be buying, you spent $50 on this junk. You could have bought one, this one cool game. Are you happy with these purchases? You bought a, you bought a pop, you bought a perler and you bought this other thing, but that could have been a video game. Just remember that. So these are like, we did the top things you're wasting your money on. Yeah. So that, that's funny that uh, you, you said I could be buying a book. Cause that's exactly how we feel about it as well. Well, that, that's what informs my decision-making. Like, what I've decided I'm going to collect, unless there's just a Funko Pop that I really like, because I'll have to admit, they're really cute. And I did buy the Harry Potter Funko Pop advent calendar because I'm a, I'm a sucker, I suppose. I had to. But beyond that, I really decided I'm going to collect the exclusive, like the New York Comic Con or the New York whatever and the San Diego Comic Con exclusives. And, that's, and if there's a large Funko Pop, like the Dobby Target exclusive Funko Pop, then I may. But it's not in the list of have to have, but the exclusives okay. from like the San Diego, because they, they have fun ones that come out there, um, as well as like the big one in New York in the fall. Those are, yeah. that's, I guess, what my, the two that I go for. And then everything else is just, eh, it's really cute. I don't mind spending nine, ten dollars on it. If it's anything more than that, I really have to sit and think like I could be buying a book. So, right. you know, is this really where I want to put my money if I decide to sell it? Is it going to be something I can at least get my money out of? Even if I don't make any money, can I at least get some back? Um, that's kind of what informs my decision-making process for things that aren't on the list. Yeah, and that's, you know, we, we go through a lot of that same stuff. I, I think I told you this briefly, but my wife got into pop collecting for Harry Potter. I was pretty against it. And now, now I maintain a list and I watch for the new ones to come out. <laughs> They're just so cute. I, some of them I'm like, oh yeah, I like that one. I'm like, no, you don't like any of them. Stop. Because I, the minute my, I can't let my collector brain kick in. Right. And it already has. I already made a list. And that's a problem. I'm like, the minute I made a list, I knew I was in trouble. Right. Because I was just watching my wife. I'm like, oh, how do I get this one? It's Snape as a bugger. That was a Comic-Con exclusive from like two years ago. Well, if we were on top of it, we would have got it for like $20. Now it's going to be, that's like $50. Now we're overspending on these things. Now I got to watch out because she wants them all. Right. Except for the except for the big ones. You said you like the big ones. And I want to get someone on who can tell me about Funko Pop collecting. Because talk about a world I don't really understand and is very confusing for people who are deep into that. But the tall, like 10 inch ones, you like those ones? I think those are weird. I the Dobby just because I like Dobby. I mean, there's only two, right? The Dobby and, and the Niffler. Right. right. And the Niffler is one that I didn't have to have. I saw it. I could have bought 10. I just decided I didn't need one. 
Yeah, we saw it the other night, and my wife was like, I don't really like it. She also doesn't really love the representation of the Niffler in pop form anyways. Except the baby Nifflers. I don't have any of the Nifflers, baby or not. I just, I would rather, I think there are better things to spend my money on. Okay, yeah. I like the baby ones all right, but I didn't like the the regular Niffler figure. Anyways, uh, that's a deep aside. of No one cares about that. So what type of collectors there are in your hobby? And I know that's kind of a, a broad topic, but if you can explain to us maybe some of the paths people take. Are people like, I'm only collecting U.S. copies? only first prints, first editions, stuff like that? Or does everyone kind of collect the same? Because for us, we have very specific lanes. Yes and no, as far as collecting the same. Like generally speaking, most collectors at some point want a first print book, whatever that first print book, it can be one of the seven, but they want at least one. Um, I know somebody who's collecting all the translations of book five, because that's her favorite, as well as she wants a first print book five. There's 500,000 of those printed. So she's, they're everywhere. She can find one very easily. So that's what she's doing. And then I know people that, you know, they're just collecting the first books, like they're doing translations only because this person is a polyglot. They speak 13 different languages. So they're just doing book one translations only. And there's 90 of those. Okay. So are 989, 90, I think 90 with the Hawaiian coming out. Um, and then I know people who I started when I was doing translations, I was just going to do book one and book three. So Philosopher's Stone, Prisoner of Azkaban. And then I just decided I wanted to do them all. So now that's the plan. Okay. And then there's people who do box sets. They'll click because there's so many different sets, especially when you look at the Bloomsbury, the UK, who's the original publisher of these is Bloomsbury. And they have so many different sets with different cover art. And some of these sets are very limited to like 20,000 print or made, um, 5,000 made, things like that. And they collect those because the box has art too. Oh, yeah. The the box sets are, I mean, even in the U.S., there's so many different box sets here that, I, that are still like in print at the same time. Right. Or they're doing translations, but they're doing box sets with the translations. Not any particular book, box set. So even if it's a set of books one and two, it's still a box set. They're going to collect it. Okay, so let, let me, I want to jump in just like a, a quick question that'll kind of inform uh, me a little bit. So when you have a box set and it's got, you know, all seven books in there, and you can also buy all of those seven on the shelf, like uh, we'll use the U.S., uh, the, the 20th anniversary, the paperbacks, they have that box set that's out right now with like the black and white covers. Right. Now, do you, like, do people buy the box set and then one of each of those individually? Or is the one in the box set exactly the same, so they don't need to buy those? They're the same. The only reason, like, I went out when the book was, because the box set came out a month and a half after they were released individually. So when it was released individually, to make sure I got a first print of it, I went and bought one. Okay. So could could you feasibly, like, in those box set, could it not be a first print in there? Not a first print, first edition? It'd be, well, it's not a first edition anyway. But it wouldn't... Well, yeah, sorry. That's fine. Um, it's possible that it would not be, because I don't know how many of these were printed, right? So okay, I'm guessing, you know, at least a million, but I could be super wrong. Okay. So I wanted to make sure that I had one, and I didn't know what was going to come out in the box set, because I've seen box sets that come out that are, you know, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th print. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, and let me just, uh, and this is something I was going to get to later, but I mean, 
here's a fine place to wedge it in. Um, so the first print, first edition of Harry Potter uh, in America came out, or or Philosopher's Stone or whatever that came out. So and then when a box set comes out, even though it's got a different cover. Um, and it's in this new box set. That's still not a first edition, right? It's not the first edition of that box set. It's still whatever edition we're on. Well, I think I follow your question. Um, maybe. Can you repeat that? Sure. So uh, Philosopher's Stone came out like the Bloomsbury one, right? Uh-huh. So and that was the, and you buy a first print, first edition of that. And that's back in what, 1997 or whatever, 98? 97. Yeah, so now here we are in 2018, and they're going to release that book again. It doesn't need to be specifically to that box set, but they're releasing that book again. Is It's got a different cover. It may be going into a box set. What edition is that? Can that be a first edition no. of that cover, or is it not a first edition? That's whatever the current edition is. That's the edition, like, you can say, like, the first, like, the adult edition, the very first adult edition came out in, like, 1999 i believe so you can say first adult edition okay because it's adult cover art um you can say second adult edition if you want to but generally it's adult cover art or i'll i like on my website i'll say um or in my database it's 2010 edition because i know what it is or like the one that came out in 2010 is the signature edition the celebration edition came out in 2001 first adult edition or the adult edition first one came out in 99 only for the first four books were printed with that type of cover art. And then they made other adult editions that followed. And those are the ones that most that are more known as far as the adult covers go. Um, and then after they started printing in the adult covers, like adult hardcover, soft cover, you'll see people say children's cover. And even though it's the children's cover that will garner more demand because Harry Potter was originally published as a children's book. That's where the first cover art came from. Thomas Taylor was the Bloomsbury uh, illustrator for book one so children's art is the one that's in more demand than the adult art even though i believe starting in book five they started publishing uh, the adult cover as well as the children's cover at the same time so they're both technically first edition it's just of that book but it's still first it's the adult cover first edition adult cover first edition children's cover or you can just say children's cover if that makes any sense at all. It's a lot of information. That makes plenty of sense. But what, like, let's say on that new kids edition. So on the on the latest edition, like the 20th anniversary one, what edition is that one? 20th anniversary edition. So when you open up the copyright page, does it say, does it, does it like a fourth print, fifth print? Does, does it keep that like going or is it like first print? Does it still say like first print there or is it like the 96 print? If it's the 20th anniversary edition, going back to the U.S. 20th anniversary editions, print has nothing to do with edition. They're separate. Okay. So, you know, the 20th anniversary edition, I can still have a first print. That's fine because it's it's still the first print of that book. Okay. So those those don't depend on each other. All right. Yeah. And wh- what I was really just trying to get to is, so when you see people on like eBay or whatever put up, they're like, oh, first edition I and know. it's got like a new a, a new cover. You're like. That's not exactly right, because uh, the detail there is actually far more nuanced, as you just explained. Yeah. I just said nuanced, and I meant nuanced. I don't know where... (laughs) That's not a real word. Nuanced. Great. I really enjoy... Well, one, making up words is fun. And two, it's one of my pet peeves of eBay. It's like, oh my goodness, know what you're selling, and know what you're buying so you don't spend your money in the wrong place. 
Right. You kind of told us there's many different lanes you can take to collecting Harry Potter. It's not just everyone just collects one through seven. You, you know, people specialize in book five, book five translations and all that. Would you say it is helpful and to have a goal when you get into your hobby? Because it sounds like there's a lot you could do. There's a lot of stuff out there. So would you say that's helpful to have a goal? Well, yeah, because otherwise you can wind like I know somebody who has something like or who had at one point 14,000 books, but they had so many, they had like a thousand book threes. Nothing was special about the book three. It's just they, every time they saw one at a thrift shop, they had to buy it. There was no real goal. It was just buying Harry Potter books, but not really making a goal. Like I have to have all of these covers. I have to have this. It's just, oh, cool, a Harry Potter book for sale. I'll buy it. And then that wound up having 14,000 books, but they didn't have much beyond the 14,000. Like there was nothing really rare in there. You would agree then that it's, it's helpful to kind of see what kind of other collectors are doing and then maybe pick a lane and not that you have to do the same thing, but at least organize yourself down a path rather than just trying to consume it all because you will burn out. I think if you just try to take it all, there's that you'll burn out. And you know, I get asked quite a bit, you know, how do I collect or what do I collect? And one, you collect what you like. The hobby, and then as far as like price, it can cost as much or as little as you want, but at least have an idea what you want to go for. So that way you can make a list, check it twice, and make sure that, you know, you're you're making the collection that you're happy with because otherwise it, it stops being fun at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and collector's burnout for us is, is very real. Um, I think that's that's true of most hobbies, especially in, in a world where there's so much merchandise that can be consumed. Uh, what, one, you're just going to, you'll overspend and it'll never feel tenable. Um, you'll just be overwhelmed by the amount of it. So knowing all of that, I also know what I did when I first started collecting, and I'm curious what you started doing, because what I did when I first started collecting, I, I made that decision. I was collecting video games. I just bought everything I could I could find, and that was a mistake. And then I had to like kind of center myself and then be like, okay, this is what I'm actually doing. Here's what I want to achieve, and then break it up into chunks. Uh, what what was your path like? Were you were were you better than I was? Did you have like a mindset in, or did you make the same mistake? I feel like everyone makes. Um. Yes. So when I first decided, okay, we're going to collect Harry Potter books, I decided we're going to do it big. I wanted to be a well-known collector with an amazing collection, but I didn't know what that meant because I didn't know enough about what I was buying. So the very first thing I bought when I decided I was going to do it right was I bought two forgeries, two JK Rowling forgeries. <laughs> Congrats. I know. And, <laughs> and thankfully, somebody's like, they sent me an email. This is back when eBay was a lot less strict about like, identity I guess of buying things and he sent me an email and he's like you just bought forgeries I'll help you get your money back okay cool and actually he said you know before you buy anything fine talk to Peter Peter's the Potter collector and that's how we met was through my buying stupidity but I didn't know you know I'm I'm such a naive person in real life I just assume oh cool they say it's signed by JK Rowling it must be signed by her I would never think that somebody would be that dishonest because I'm not I don't think that way or didn't now I do but that's how I decided, you know, I'm going to do it big, bought forgeries, got my money back. And then I was like, I have to know what it is that I'm buying. And that was kind of the very rude awakening at the very beginning of my collecting was I have to know what it is that I'm buying to make sure I don't spend my money in the wrong place. So then I thought about, okay, what is it that I want to collect rare and valuable things? What is rare and valuable here? First prints, okay. First prints of what? And go from there. 
So lots of research, lots of talking to collectors is kind of how I started. It was very slow after that forgery buying it. I was very gun shy for probably a few months after to make sure that, you know, what I was buying was a sound buy, that it was a good buy, that I wasn't overspending, you know, just typical things that you worry about when you don't know what it is that you're doing. Yeah, that's very true of like everything we do. I I can relate to just about everything you said. Uh, forgeries are something we deal with, but just having to know what you're collecting and doing some base research, you can't, when you dip your toe into something this large, you have to you have to know something. You can't come in as a know nothing with a bunch of money because having a bankroll, while that's helpful, you'll probably just make a bunch of mistakes before you get it right. So uh, yeah, I think that's really solid advice from you. Thank you. Yeah, and I see it all the time. Like I see if you just search through eBay sold in the Harry Potter books, you'll see people spending five hundred dollars on a book that's valued at ten. Happens every day. Or buying forgeries. Somebody spent twenty five hundred dollars on one forgery valued at nothing because it's a forgery. Yep, that's uh we have the same issues. All right, pulling us back here for a second. So, and we touched on this a little bit. Even though you've narrowed it down to book collecting, and this is something I ask for video games, is it possible or reasonable to collect everything or for like Harry Potter books, is there just too much? It's not reasonable or is that something you think is obtainable for some people? Like your average person, not like, hey, if you're a rich person then cool, go knock it out of the park, but for your average person who just likes Harry Potter? Um, I wouldn't say it's, unless you have a warehouse, no. I don't think you can really put it all. There's so many things. There's Legos, there's Funko Pops, there's posters, there's movie posters, there's book advertisement posters, there's book, like, paraphernalia that came out, like, advertisements and all this stuff. There's standees. People I know collect standees that the books were sold on when they first came out with all the different art. Those are huge and they collect them. And then there's, you know, book proofs and there's dummy books as well. Those are, some of those can get big, not necessarily proofs, but the dummy books take up space. Then you have, you know, Funko Pops, they're varying sizes. You've got dolls, you have so many Legos, Lego sets. You put the Legos together, do you leave them in the box? Either way, they take up space. Yeah. So, well, let me narrow it down to just books. Would it be reasonable just be a book collector? Is it possible to get every book with every translation? Or is that still for your average person, is that going to be too much space and and not really realistic? Just to set people up so they know when you're going in, that is that a reasonable thing to expect and want to do? Or it's not, so don't make that your goal. Um, well, it's my goal, to be honest. But I I have 625 books on my shelves. That's not counting what's put up and in the safe. Okay. And I still don't have, I still don't have all the translations, period. I haven't finished that. Um, Peter the Potter Collector has something like 1,200, 1,300 books maybe, and he still doesn't have them all. So it's a serious commitment if you want to do it. It can be done. Lots of money has to be outlaid over time. That's one of the reasons is I have to live. Otherwise, you know, I don't get to have my books. So there's that too, because some of these box sets get really rare, and they're rare in their country, and the people know that they're rare, so there's value there too. And they can be, you know, $500. And then you have to pay shipping out. There's another, you know, 100 200 So $700 for this set of books. Just for my audience, if you guys think we have it bad when shipping is pain in the ass, the rates are always going up here, just be happy you don't collect books internationally or just games internationally. Because when you start to look at that shipping, books are much heavier than games. And that, that becomes ridiculous. And I'm, I'm sure, Carla, you can tell us a little more. 
about like the average, like what does it cost you to get like a book from, uh, we'll just say the UK because that's easy, the UK to over to you in Texas? If it's, you know, economical shipping, it can be like $30, $20, $30, depending on the weight for one book. If it's a set, you're looking at closer to like 60, 70, 80. So in many cases, is the shipping more than the cost of the book? Yeah, yeah. And then you have like, I have a deal with my friend Yvonne in Wales, where like, if I find a book in her realm of the woods, I'll send it to her house and we do one big shipment between so she'll send stuff to mine and we just, we ship big boxes back and forth through like a freight forwarder, basically. Well, so it sounds like, I mean, if if translations is going to be your goal, you kind of have to make some connections worldwide and or shipping just would not be a reasonable proposition. Yeah. You have to decide, okay, if I'm going to do translations, one, I need to meet people. And two, I have to be okay with paying a decent amount of money in shipping because there's nothing that you can really do to mitigate that cost. It's just, it's a necessity to get the book. Yeah. And, and that's just something to know going in that shipping is going to bite you and your wallet hard and you're not going to see anything for that shipping. It's just uh, a thing to live with. Um, but we, you talked about a lot about uh, the space in which things take up. And I know we all know the pain of that. So how do you guys store your books and like, how do you protect them? Um, do you have to keep any of your collection in boxes? Do you think that's common? Do you know people who have like, here's my, my six shelves or whatever, but then I got like 30 boxes in the garage of books. Like, how do you guys do that? I know people of all of it. You know, I, I know people who put their books on their shelves and they're wrapped in like the archival quality wraps, like the sleeves. They'll put them in a sleeve and then put it on the shelf. I don't do that because I mess with mine too much. I like to flip through them, smell them, hold them. There's a tangible quality of the book that I love. So I, mine aren't in sleeves. Mine are just up on shelves. I do have books and totes, but those are the ones for sale. And then I have my rare stuff in the safe. Okay. So, and then what do you guys... Uh, and I can't remember if I put this later, but you might as well tell us. Uh, what do you guys use to uh, put those on? Like, what shelves do you guys normally get? Is, is there like, because uh, this is a question I get all the time, and I bet you do too. Oh my God, I love your shelves. What kind of shelves do you have? Yes. Uh, do you get that a lot? So, Ikea is one, our best friend. Uh, what specifically at Ikea? What I, specific shelves? I love the Billies because they have uh, glass doors that I can attach. So it keep, I've got animals. It keeps my animals away from things. And it, it presents pretty as well. And you can put like film on the door, like a protected UV protected film. So if you have any windows, they, they don't fade. You know, that's a big problem. Okay. Yeah, that's that makes sense to me. I have UV film and I've told people that for us is put UV film on your window, especially if you have any sun coming into that room. Because sun fade is a real problem. Yes, so yes, it is. So keep your books out of the sun. Um, so books and games away from the sun. The sun is everybody's enemy, including just the enemy of my skin personally. <laughs> um, so for us, it's very hard to insure our games and our collections. But what about for books? Is it easy to insure a book collection? Because book collecting is, you know, it's a much older hobby than say video game collecting and that's like a a thing that's known do you do you have any trouble doing that is that something you did uh yeah um my my insurance agent is a friend of mine so i don't know how hard it would be for anybody else i know she worked with me we had to establish a valuation of the books which is hard because i'm usually one of the people who helps value some of the books 
for people, but you know, we had to look at the market and this is what I paid. This is what it's selling for now. Um, eBay, we could look at that or if we needed to, we could go through like heritage auction has an valuation expert. If you need to go through that, some, some insurances want you to do that. Mine did not. Okay. So it, it can be done. It's because yeah. when people ask me, I'm like, good luck. Um, here's what I would do, but maybe, maybe see what happens. Um, so we're talking about expensive things now. Uh, so maybe tell me what is the, the Holy grail of your guys is their, their hobby. Uh, of your hobby is there anything <laughs> that is just like kind of universally known as like for us we have stuff that's very specific but in your hobbies are like all collectors know that these are like the five things everyone wants but they're probably priced out of or they're just too rare and you're not going to find them yeah um so it's in general it's going to be the first edition first print hardcover uh harry potter and the philosopher's stone harry potter was okay. published in soft cover and hardcover format at the same time. So there's, you know, 5,051 or 5150 soft cover first prints of Philosopher's Stone running around, but there's only 500 of the hardcover. And of those 500, 300 were sent to libraries and they're beat up. And so 200 made it to bookstores. And those are the ones like of the 500, the ones that were in the bookstores and not really well read are the ones that a collector just really wants to have and those are so hard to find one and they one sold in auction about a year ago for about $81,000 oh boy and then a really really well read hardcover first print philosopher's stone sold for about $40,000 $42,000 and this one was really well read okay yeah that's that's very expensive. Okay, so that's and that's kind of universally known that as as the one. Um, and I'm sure, and you can just tell me in general. Do you guys have stuff that is actually just so rare? Aside from that, that even though it may not be expensive, it uh, just seems impossible to find. Yes, it's just so rare. That, there's not really a market for it because nobody. Some of it they don't know it exists until you find it. Okay, so so you guys are still discovering stuff yeah. in your hobby. Yeah, we are. Okay. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to see if that was still Well, it's not uncommon um, for me to, like, I'll text or call Peter. I'm like, what is this? Well, I don't know. Okay, let's see what it is. <laughs> That's We have a shared collection, actually. We have stuff that, like, we've not seen one before, and we can't decide who should own it, so we both did. <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, that, that sounds difficult, but that's awesome that you guys have that relationship. And then this is something you've kind of been talking about, and this is just a general theme, but it sounds like if you want to be in this in this book collecting world for Harry Potter, it seems very social. Is that true? Yes, it is. I've met some of the best people through Instagram and through collect and eBay uh, through collecting Harry Potter. And I mean, it sounds just like I mean, aside from just meeting people, it sounds like everybody knows you need people if this is going to be your hobby. Because a lot of times, video game people they'll just shut down and be like, "I'll just sit in my dark little eBay hole and I'll, I'll do whatever I want." <laughs> But I, it sounds like book collecting, you can't just rely on that. No, no. Um, I mean, I guess you can, but you're going to miss out on so many things. Okay. And we've all, we so help it, each other not... out. Like uh, one of my friends, he's a younger collector. He's uh, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in there. And he's, um, he's American, but he has family in Greece. He speaks Greek. He's really been very helpful getting the Greek Harry Potter books out. 
Um, so oh, wow. he's a good asset to have as far as getting some of the more rare Greek covers because he can find them. He can speak the language. He can read the, you know, the Craigslist, whatever in Greece and find these things. That That's, that's awesome that it's like that. So um, aside from like those places, do you guys have any, uh, media conventions or like conventions at all? Cause I know there are Harry Potter conventions, but those seem like media conventions. Is there anything like specifically for like book collectors or is there like groupings in, within those? Cause I know like you get like some of the, the big cons at universal, but that doesn't really seem like where you'd go as a collector. No, there's like the big, like leaky con. Those are all media, mostly movies, mostly fandom. It's just fandom wide. It's everything. Okay. Uh, there's nothing that really points to a specific collectorship that I'm aware of. Okay. I would love to have a book collector get together because we talk all the time. We email back and forth. We text back and forth. Some of them I've met in real life. Some of them were really good friends in real life outside of book collecting. But we talk all the time, and it, it would be awesome just to sit down and like have a meet and greet. But it's hard because we're all over the world. Right. So, uh, I mean, I, and I can tell, talk to you a little bit, like how we've done that on our side and like how that transition starts to, to go, but we'll, we'll, I'll talk to you offline on that. Okay. Um, so we, I'm sorry, uh, we want to collect. So we, we got people here who are hearing you and they say, this is, this is for me. So we need you to teach us, Carly. So teach us what's the difference between the Philosopher's Stone and the Sorcerer's Stone, aside from the title, like print runs and everything, because that is, I mean, that, that's like a key point of confusion, I feel like, for the general audience. It is. Um, so the first print, like I've said throughout this, this whole segment, has been about, you know, that's the Holy Grail, first print, first edition. But so you have like, we'll go back to Sorcerer's Stone. Somebody comes up with the Sorcerer's Stone, first edition that they just bought at Barnes & Noble because you can still buy the first edition Harry Potters at Barnes & Noble. But it's in its 100th okay. it's in its 100th print. So what does print run mean? And print run is where value is. There's other things that dictate value, but the lower the print, you're generally going to find those other things in place. So print run is kind of king here. And if it's in its 100th print, there are 99 prints before this one. So first print is the very first time it's been available to the public. You have other things where the text was available to certain audiences, like with the advanced reader copies or the proofs out of Bloomsbury, but those were a select audience. This is the first time it's been available to the public. Okay. If that, and then, um, you know, there, there's so much there, actually. You have book club edition issues, and they're not valuable, and they look so similar. Um, so you have to know how to tell, like, a first print, first edition Sorcerer's Stone away from the book club. Because they look, if you don't know what you're looking for, they look very almost identical. Okay, so let me let me jump in, just because I, and I, you're throwing a lot out there. Yes. Okay, let's, let's go back to print and edition. First edition? And first print, you can have a first edition, but if it's not the first print, it's not the rare one, correct? Correct. Okay, so you can have a first, uh, first edition, 
And people, I, I see that on eBay. Oh man, this is a first edition, but they don't realize it's like a hundredth print. So that's not worth anything, right? Right. You'll see it, like we said on eBay. Oh, it's a first edition. You know, whatever. They'll have a picture of the copyright page showing the number line. They don't know how to read the number line, which I get. But so there's confusion there and they'll have it priced at like $1,000, $500, whatever. And oh, it's super, super rare. And it's usually not. And like you were saying, there are still first editions you can buy at Barnes & Noble yes. right now. Yeah. Okay. So that's for anyone thinking to get into this. Please do more research on this. Please get a very good understanding between the difference of print and edition. Well, tell us about like, what is that? What's that mean? First edition. It's just the edition of the text block, correct? Yes. It's the like edition is tied to the ISBN number. Um, okay. So everything that has the ISBN is going to be the same edition. Print doesn't, ma doesn't factor into ISBN at all. So, but that helps dictate what the edition is. Um, and I do on my website under Scholastic Books, I do have what a first print, first edition Sorcerer's Stone looks like as far as traits. And I have a video out on YouTube about it. Okay. And now you also threw some other words at us like proof and library edition. What what are the other types and, and book club? What What does all that mean? A book club is a secondary publisher. It came along about six months to a year after, say, The Sorcerer's Stone. Even though the copyright page in some of the book clubs is identical to the first edition, first print. But there's different things that differentiate, yeah. So you could have a first edition, first print book club, but that's not a true first. That's after the first print, first edition of the original copy, correct? Correct. Like, it's a $10 book. You'll see people on eBay that are like, oh, cool, it's so rare. It's an early book club. They acknowledge it's a book club, but it's an early one. It's still a $10 book outside of eBay. No big-time collector is going to spend that on a book club. It's a sec all secondary publishers. And just tell us a little more about book club editions. General traits, like what's the difference there? They are cheaper made. The pages are thinner. Usually they're a little shorter. Um, the jacket, you know, the jacket of the first edition trade, which is the one you buy at Barnes & Noble, has raised foil lettering, it has a price, it has a textured jacket, it's really nicely done, the paper's thick. Um, if you take the jacket off and you see what's called the boards, the boards are purple and red spine cloth with a really pretty okay. gold, gold or gilt lettering on the spine. The book clubs are generally, not all of them, but they're gonna be like a monotone, like a red board or a black board under the jacket. Some you'll see is a black and maroon board. Uh, the jackets are not usually, they don't have any foil raised. They don't have the raised foil at all. They're flat. Some of them have a textured thing, like a textured jacket, but it's a thinner, not as good quality. There's not a price at all on the book clubs because they weren't available to sale to the public. They were bought through that particular book club. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, book clubs are are far more basic. You said it, more cheaply made, more basic. Yeah. Okay, and we were telling us a little bit about the Philosopher's Stone, those, that 500 that were made and 300 went to the library. Were those different then, or no. are U.S. library editions different? So there is a library edition for, uh, published by Scholastic. It was published in 2003, and it says reinforced library edition under it on the copyright page, as under the number line which is the string of numbers at the bottom of this classic copyright page. It'll say reinforced library edition. And it looks the exact same 
as the first edition. The boards are the same. It has a textured jacket with the raised foil lettering. There's no price because it wasn't for sale to the public. It was going straight to libraries. But other than that, it looks very similar, only it's reinforced for heavy-duty reading. So they've really done, like, the spine is fanned, it's glued, and it's sewn together. So it's it's use, it's reinforced for heavy reading. Whereas, you know, the Bloomsbury books, of those 500, they were just bound. They weren't library-bound books. The book itself wasn't supposed to be collectible. They used cheap paper, cheap boards. There wasn't even a jacket issued with the first Philosopher's Stone. In fact, the jacket didn't come along until the third print hardcover. Oh, really? Yeah. And the paper yellows really fast. So you have to be careful with that. And they just use, use the cheap glue. It's not a well-done book. It wasn't supposed to be what it is. That's how something actually becomes collectible. When we're telling you it's collectible, like on the cover or whatever, means it probably wasn't. It's that stuff that no one expected. And that's where the value was generated because people thought it was just going to be a consumable, read it, be done with it. It becomes trash like so many other books. And this was a thing like, you know, original Star Wars figures, old comic books that people suddenly said, oh my God, I want to keep these, but they weren't made to be kept. Right. And that's what you get with the Harry Potter book. It's the same. Okay. There's, there's so many things. Let me, let me backpedal just a second. Is this hobby like just in general, would you say this is an expensive hobby? If you want to collect the high end stuff, yes. If you want to do translations, depending on how you want to do it, not necessarily. If you just want to do Harry Potter books and you don't care about edition or print, it doesn't have to be no. You can spend as much as you want to. Okay, so there are avenues. It's not a come with your wallet or don't come at all kind of hobby. Right, because if you don't care about edition of the book, you just want to collect Harry Potter books and you just want to buy, like I want to collect, you know, the first edition U.S. Harry Potter books, but you don't care about print. Those can be acquired as cheaply as five dollars if you don't care about conditions now let me ask you and this is you should always collect how you want and that's something i preach all the time collect what you want but if you were doing it with an eye towards the financial side should you save up and buy higher end stuff first or should you like speculating on some of the more mass market stuff that you can still get i i okay so i'm an investor before i'm a collector i have collector brain but everything i buy I always look at the financial end of it. So with that being said, when I decided I wanted to do the translations, I knew which ones were harder to find and I knew which ones were going toward the harder to find and I knew which ones were already costing quite a bit of money. So I went at it trying to get the ones that were already high because the market itself is growing. It's grown quite a bit in the past year, year and a half. So I was snatching up the ones that I could, you know, the harder to find that were getting more expensive very fast. So, yes, is the long answer. Okay. Sometimes it's true and sometimes it isn't. But in general, I think that's a fairly good rule for new collectors is not to, like, I wouldn't tell you to go buy new Nintendo Switch games to be collectible. I would tell you to invest in some of the older stuff first. Yeah. And that's the same. Like with Harry Potter books, if you're going to do translations, the low-hanging fruit is going to stay low-hanging. There's always going to be the German, the French, the Spanish around. If you don't care about covers and you're not picky about certain things, those are going to be around a dime a dozen. If you do care about, you know, things and if you find a rare, you know, French book, you know, the rare French box set or whatever, buy it if it's a good price. Otherwise, you know, don't don't spend too much time finding those because they're around. Um, save your money for the Asturian, which is selling for about a thousand dollars now, if not higher. Fourteen hundred, I think, was the last time it sold. Solid advice. Now I want to get back into like the first editions and first prints and stuff. 
Are there numbers on how many first print, first editions there are of each of the, the seven books? In the U.S. and the U.K., yes. Others, not like some, they don't give it out. Like if you look at the Scots translation, the Scots won't say how many they printed. They say it's in-house information only. Okay. So, yes, you can go to, like, if you're looking at just U.S. and U.K., there's a bibliography of J.K. Rowling that's just been updated. Some of the print numbers, specifically the print run for, the first print run for Chamber of Secrets, Bloomsbury, I have an issue with because it's I think it's way too low. Okay. But the numbers are there, so you can kind of see... You know, the date that things were published, get an estimate at least for the prints that were given or printed in the first print run. So that way you can get an estimate for how rare things are. Okay, awesome. Well, I mean, that's nice that there is some information available, even if uh, some of it's a little dicey. Let me ask you about cost on these. Um, I'm assuming that Philosopher's Stone is the most expensive of them, but does the first edition, first print, does the cost vary wildly from like Chamber of Secrets to, you know, Deathly Hollows or yes. do they are they still pretty close? No. So Chamber of Secrets first print first edition unsigned. Bloomsbury, eh, if it's in fine, maybe seven hundred to a thousand dollars right now. What would like uh book five be? Order of the Phoenix or something, what would that be? Fifty, forty, thirty, fifty, somewhere in there. So that's a fairly large jump there from those two books. But what about for the third book? Is the gap <laughs> narrower there? or The third book is a can of worms. We can go into it, but it is a real can of worms because there's three different first prints for the Bloomsbury. I guess explain to me a little bit. Let's go into the weeds. <laughs> so with the Bloomsbury, Prisoner of Azkaban, there are what's called the three states. So the first... Okay, and what are what are states? Okay, so states are... Little changes that were made to an edition that don't require a new edition to be made. So, like, they fix a typo. They change a price. They fix um, the text block, like, in the first state, first print, first edition, Prisoner of Azkaban by Bloomsbury, has a drop text issue, meaning it's in the wrong spot. Um, and then on the copyright page, it says, Joanne Rowling, 1999. And that was fixed in the second state. The drop text and the... The Joanne Rowling were fixed in the second state, so it says J.K. Rowling on the copyright page. The text is fixed on the first page of chapter one, and that's the second state. The first state, from my understanding, was not, it wasn't out for sale long, and very few were printed. I think like 1,500 is the last I heard. I could be wrong. It's been about a year since I've talked numbers about Azkaban. And then the third state is, the third state's a mess also, but the third state has J.K. Rowling but it doesn't have where it was printed. And it's technically, if you want, like it's the Australian first print Prisoner of Azkaban. But because we don't have where it was printed, it's been lumped in with the Bloomsbury UK book. Is there a big price difference between the states? Yeah, the first state first print is about in fine, you know, a thousand and up. It just depends on who has the pockets because they're hard to find. And if somebody wants one for their collection, a thousand and fine, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred. They just don't come up often. The second state in fine is like a $400 book. Book three has a a big thing going on with it with these states, yeah. but, and let me know if I'm incorrect here, but it feels like in book four, the readership became much larger. Huge, yes. And nation, like worldwide, because that's when the movie was coming out. The movie came out in 2001. Book four was out in 2001, not book five. People saw the movie 
that's how I got introduced to Harry Potter. I had pneumonia. My sister made me watch Sorcerer's Stone movie. And I was really too weak to fight her on it. So I sat and watched the movie and I was like, this is fantastic. I must read the book. And so I did. Now, does that mean that with the fourth book, is is there a large price disparity? Because I'm sure they printed that thing into the ground. Book four in the U.S. is, you know, in fine first print, $20, $30, somewhere in there. So we go from these $1,000 books to like $20 books? Yeah, and really, if you're in looking at the U.S. books, even Chamber of Secrets. And Chamber of Secrets is complicated as well, for the same reason that Azkaban and Bloomsbury is. But even if you're looking at the first date, Chamber of Secrets, first print, first edition, it's still... book, maybe $150 is completely fine and unread. It's just there were 250,000 of these books printed as opposed to The Sorcerer's Stone, which is between 30 and 35,000, which is still a big first print run, but it's a lot smaller comparatively, especially when you look at the market is worldwide for these books. Well, I mean, even compared to the Bloomsbury one, when you're saying that the hardcover got like 500. Right. There are, between the hardcover and softcover, there's, you know, 50, 650 of these books, first print, Philosopher's Stone out to buy. Not counting the ones that have been ruined over time because it was 21 years ago, not the ones, I mean, I've heard stories of executives who read the book and threw it away. The hardcover who read the book and threw it away. So we don't know how many of them even made it. Losing things to time is part of what makes these things valuable, but... Uh, you know, limited quantity, lost the time. Uh, the quantities are limited for, for a myriad of reasons. That's fairly interesting. You were talking about soft covers and hard covers. It's interesting to me that the uh, soft cover and the hard cover came out at the same time for Philosopher's Stone. Did that continue with all the books? I, I don't think it did, like at least not in the U.S. Is that not true everywhere? No. The Chamber of Secrets onward was hardcover release first. Okay, and now is there a big price disparity like do do people look at the soft covers like ew soft covers or do people want the soft covers as well do they not consider those true firsts anymore or is it like hard covers a thing they're not outside of the philosopher's stone the soft cover isn't a first edition it can be the first soft cover edition but it's not a first edition the hardcover was okay they're different they were released a year or two apart so are they generally shunned? I do. <laughs> Although I say that, I'm trying to get a first edition U.S., first soft cover edition U.S., first print copy of the you know soft covers, because I'm trying to do that now. But I wouldn't put a lot of money behind it. There's always this segment of collectors that want all the first stuff. At every level of collecting, there is some level of snobbery where you just turn your nose up to certain things. And I was just wondering if soft covers were the no. thing. The, where our snobbery really comes in are the Ted Smarts, which are the secondary publisher for the Bloomsbury in the UK. The Ted Smarts, I won't know things. I'm very opposed to those. They're not, they're secondary publishers. I feel the same way about the book clubs in the US. I'm not going to spend more than $5 on a secondary published book. And let me ask you just a little bit about the print runs on the soft covers. Do they typically print more soft covers than hard covers? Yeah, they do. Okay. Are they so disposable? Do you think that over time that the soft covers will actually be harder to find the originals of um, the first edition soft covers? Of the Philosopher's Stone, they're still, I mean, they're in fine of uh, soft covers, like a $7,000 book right now, unsigned. So those are findable. And you can find several on eBay if you look right now. And I walked into my half price book in San Antonio, Texas six months ago and found a first print Bloomsbury soft cover Prisoner of Azkaban. So they're around and they're around in the state. 
by that point there were quite a few of them printed because the book by the time like the the prisoner of azkaban was being printed in soft cover book four was being printed in hardcover so when you look at the timeline of things there's a bunch made okay that makes sense let me just ask you about one other medium audiobooks anyone collecting those yes my i have a friend who is blind and he has a very large collection of the audiobooks from all over he does translations as well he's the polyglot person i was talking about earlier he has the largest known collection of audiobooks of harry potter audiobooks from around the world different translations as well so that's like a whole nother world you can get into. I know you don't specialize in audiobooks, no. but that's a wormhole you could go down if you wanted to. Yeah. And I know like the signature edition, which is a, it just signifies the cover art, basically. The audiobooks, the whole complete set of the audiobooks sold on eBay in, for 500-ish dollars for audio. Okay. Hmm. Have you listened to any of the audiobooks? Are you, are you familiar with them or are you a reader only? I have Audible. I listen to them. I listen to them in French because I'm not going to read my French copies. I'll listen to them in French or German. And I know people actually who are using Harry Potter to learn these languages. Like my polyglot friend, he is learning Faroese through Harry Potter books. Well, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're familiar, uh, very familiar with the books, that would be a nice tool to have. Are audiobooks collectible aside from, are they expensive? Do they, do they like vary in price at all? Or is that still pretty niche? Um, I don't know anybody else outside of this one collector who collects the audiobooks. I'm sure there are others. I just don't know of them. Uh, as far as collectability, I'm sure it's there. It's Harry Potter stuff. So it'll always be collectible to somebody. As far as resale value, I have no idea. I don't know. I, I know you can buy from Pottermore. It's kind of becoming the place to get these different variations, like different readers of the Potter book. Uh, and I believe you can spend quite a bit of money. One of, my, um, one of my friends was talking about spending $800 on audiobooks there the other day. Wow. That's not something I would have expected. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then going back to just traditional books, does new versus used affect the price? I'm sure it does, right? That condition-wise, I mean, let's just make it about condition. Condition is king in book collecting, I'm assuming? Yeah, just I'm with any other kind of collecting condition always. So if you have a fine book that's unread, and you can even have a, br- a book that's brand new from the publisher, but it's been beat up, the corners are bent under. I hate when that happens, but it does. You know, it just it wasn't mailed well, it wasn't shipped well, it came in a bubble mailer, whatever have you. And it looks like an elephant set on it. Even though it's brand new and unread, it's still good at best. New versus used isn't really the conversation so much as just overall condition. Right. Okay. And that's, we talked about that being fairly important. So how do you find these items that you collect? And you're collecting these translations and everything. So you talked about going to the half price books and you've talked about eBay, but where do you go to get a French copy? How do you, how do you find a Faroese book? (laughs) Where would you go? The Faroese books are hard to find. Okay. And that's one that I just don't give my source out on because they're hard to find. Okay. The French books, you can go to like Amazon.fr. They're all over the place. Depending on the cover, some of the ones are harder to find than others. I've got, I lived in France, so I've got friends there. Uh, I have friends in the UK and they're very helpful. I have friends in Italy. They're helpful. Same with Germany. I have friends in China too. So I use my friend network quite a bit. Okay. But you, you also talked about some of the specific Amazons mm-hmm. that are country specific. Some of those will ship to the US. Yeah. So you can kind of leverage those. Amazon in Brazil and Amazon in India do not ship to the US. And I'm not sure about Japan. But all the others, Amazon is Italy, Germany, France, UK, I buy from quite a bit because they have 
different markets. You know, if you list a book as a third party seller on Amazon, I can say I don't want it sold internationally. And then in general, uh, like not like your specific holes or anything, but are there any other websites or stores that people should know? I mean, besides your Barnes and Nobles and Borders and things like that, uh, stores or websites people should be looking at to, to help them collect? Booksbordery.com is a good place to go. And okay. they you can get free shipping on some of their items. Same with uh, Book Depository. You can get free shipping or not, yeah, international shipping. Uh, for certain books. And that's how I've been able to do some of this for the books that are more easily found, like the new German editions that are just fantastic. I can buy them off of Book Depository and I don't have to pay shipping. Okay, that's excellent to know. I, I needed to know that. <laughs> Those covers are great. They might be my new favorites. Uh, they're right up there, yeah. Yeah, they, they are pretty excellent. If you guys haven't seen the German covers, go Google those. They look like old fairy tale books, which is, is very appealing to me. And you can even go to carlson.de. That's the publisher. And you can find it. Okay, I will. I've only seen like five of them. For some reason, I couldn't find two of the books, the covers. So that'll be good for me. So we're talking a lot about translations. How many translations are there? 90, I think, of the different languages. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's variations within them because like the Serbian translation has two different alphabets with two different publishers. It was published in the Cyrillic alphabet, books one through five. And then uh, published in the Latin alphabet books one through seven. Okay. So that changes, that'll change your math a little bit. And that's, it's funny because everywhere you go, how you count a set, there's always nuance there. It's like, oh, there's 90, but really there's 94 if you count these four others. Or there's many more. And then if you look at unauthorized, which are ones that published without the permission of J.K. Rowling's management company, then there's a lot more. You have unauthorized Nepali. You have several different variations of unauthorized Nepali. In fact, you've got so many Chinese books, it's funny. Um, and I'm sure there's other languages. We're still finding unauthorized copies. And how do you tell the difference between an unauthorized and an authorized copy? Um, you can look at the ISBN. If the ISBN is bogus, that's a big indicator right there. ISBN will tell you like, the country code where it came from in different indicators and it'll be bogus it won't it, it'll say nothing oh okay and where can you go to like look up isbn just put them in google yeah you can look at that and you have to really know more about isbn to know it's bogus and i'm not the best person to talk to about that but i have a friend who is okay so something to be educated on though is isbns yeah and then you generally know we've been around enough to kind of figure out what's what's authorized and what's not however up until a year or two ago we didn't realize that the armenian the Western Armenian translation by Gas Print was unauthorized. We, di we huh. didn't know because it was the only Armenian around and it was all over the place for sale. Usually unauthorized copies aren't so easily obtained. And it was from a reasonable publisher. Okay. And then there's some like Mongolia has two different translations, not even just editions, but different translations entirely. And maybe three. We're not sure if the first one we found is authorized or not. And that was. 2001-2002. So it can get really hairy, like what you're saying with the nuances. And like on your site, any of your friend's sites, do they have like a list of the known translations right now? Yeah, you can actually go to, to Harry Potter translations. There's a whole Wikipedia page. Oh, okay. So there, there's a resource mm -hmm. for you guys if you're interested. Excellent. We talked about all these translations and we talked about first print. So I just wanted to go back to that before I, I lose sight of it. We talked about the ISBN, we talked about the number line, but how is the best way to identify a first print? Is there any websites that people can go to look at? Because 
I know it's not just like opening to the copyright page, right? That's not correct? It, um, I mean, if you know how to read the copyright page, it'll work. Okay. But if you don't, are there other like clues you can get from the covers? Yeah. Or is it really you should just learn how, how to read a copyright page properly and make that your number one goal? Well, know what you're reading when you look at the copyright page is one. But two, I do have it on my website as far as like the first print, first edition of the Sorcerer's Stone and Philosopher's Stone, just because those are the two that have the most confusion. I'm a bit behind on the other books. But in general, like if you're looking at the first edition Harry Potter book, they're going to have like Sorcerer's Stone. It will always have the purple and red board. It will always have raised gold lettering. It will always have a price unless it's been cut and you can see where it's been cut. It will always have a price on the front inside flat. It will always have really good paper quality. It'll always have the gold lettering on the spine. Okay. So there there definitely are, are differences that are noticeable from a texture and visual standpoint then. Yeah. And even if you look at the back of the jacket on the Sorcerer's Stone, you'll see a barcode. There are two small, there's actually two barcodes, a smaller one next to a longer, taller one. The smaller one is always representative of the price of the book. So if there is no... Okay. And there's five little numbers on top of that five that short barcode. If there are no numbers or no little barcode, it's a book club easy. And so that makes your search easier. Yeah, that's some good stuff to to know and look out for. If you are going down, because I know a lot of our collectors, if they decide to do this, they're going to be like, I want first prints, but well, be careful. Yeah. Uh, know, how, know how to read them. Well, that and there are fake books made also. There's fake. There's fake Philosopher's Stone first prints made, and there's fake Sorcerer's Stone first prints. Yes, and fakes are a huge deal, and I, I got a whole section that I want to I want to get us to talk about those. But before we get to those, I know aside from first editions, that some of the things that collectors gravitate, and we've talked a little bit about, you've said unsigned, but what about signed copies? Can you teach us a little bit about that? I mean, obviously, signed books are, are worth more, but how much more like how drastic is it uh, and like is a signature is joe's signature like okay i got joe's signature doesn't matter what book what edition it's always two thousand dollars or does it vary from print and edition which ones are signed it varies so much so book collectors tend to like books that were signed the year they were published okay and so if you can get like my first print, first edition Sorcerer's Stone was signed in 1998, the year it was her first U.S. tour, as well as the year it was printed. So that in fine can be a $5,000 book. But if we look at a first print, first edition U.S. Chamber of Secrets signed in 1999, which is the year the book was printed also, it's going to be in fine maybe $750 because she signed so many of them for one. Like 1999 is one of her most common signatures, the most common signature in the U.S. Oh, okay. Well, you said most common signature. Are there different signatures? Yeah. Um, her signature has changed drastically since she first started signing. Her very first signature was J.K.Rolling, and you could still see kind of a W and the L, and you could make out the letters instead of like, what it is now um and it changed over the years as she became more popular she signed more she had to get a quicker signature it wasn't going to work okay yeah got to be less fancy and more mechanical like uh less less arm movements like two or three on right and so 
as she started citing more, it changed. And that's one of the ways that we can detect forgeries is it doesn't fall into anything she's ever signed. Like outside of looking at there's stops and starts and nobody signing her name is going to stop and start this much. They're studying something. Pin pressure is different. You know, when you start looking at little nuanced items, but overall, if you can say, well, this doesn't fit into anything that she signed at any given point in time, one of these things doesn't belong. That's a perfect segue into getting into about fix because I know that uh, on your site and you know uh, on your Instagram and your YouTube videos, you do a lot to help protect people from fakes and from forgeries, and that you and like your network of friends are, are very adamant about that. You guys are, are gatekeepers in that sense, uh, helping the community. So let me ask you: How do you guys deal with fakes and forgeries? And um, do you guys lean? Are there more forgeries? Is forged signatures more of a problem, or are fake books more of a problem, or is it equal? I would say more forgeries because people can take any Harry Potter book and put her name in it. That makes sense. And I would, I would say, especially like when Cursed Child came out, there were so many forgeries, and you know, th- there wasn't a signing held for this book, not really. So where are they coming from? Where did suddenly a hundred signed books come from? Bingo. And why does Billy Bob over in the U.S. have them? It makes no sense. Or like the illustrated edition of Sorcerer's Stone, Philosopher's Stone, any of those. There weren't signings for the book. So yes, signed copies exist. One of my friends has one. It was signed on a premiere line, but it's going to have Joe's premiere line signature, which is vastly different from one she does at the signing because of time and she's walking and all these other different things. Where did, where did you know, Joe schmuck down the street get all of these and their U.S. copies? when she hasn't really done much in the U.S. in a little bit. She's been doing things in the U.K. with, like, Cursed Child or movies or whatever. Where did they come from? Right, because she only has so much time. Right. So you have to remember that there are, there's one Joe, and there's thousands of forgeries on eBay at any given point. I've seen, because I always watch, you know, the new listings that come up, right? And there are days that I look at the signed books, and there's not a single authentic signature that came that was listed that day. Okay, wow, that's so it sounds like forgeries are pretty and fakes just in general are a pretty big problem in your community. Especially at Christmas time. And you have places like, you know, third party authentication houses like PSA DNA for one. And they pass a lot of fakes. Yeah. And, you know, eBay, they sell a lot of fakes. And they're not in the market anymore really stopping them. You can report it, but they don't always take it down. And if they have a certificate of authenticity, even if it's from their home printer. Yeah, they're not going to ask too many questions. So if if you can't trust eBay and it's hard to report them, um, how do you find and identify You have to copy? know, it goes back to you have to know what it is you're buying. You have to know, okay, she was in the U.S. from this time to this time. What prints were out at that time? You know, she came back in 2007 for the Deathly Hallows tour. Um, what prints were out at that time, um, knowing that in the U.S. she didn't hold signings for books three, four, or not three, I'm sorry, she didn't hold signings for books four, five, or six. So while signed copies of those books exist, they're super hard to find because they would have had to be signed in the U.K. Okay, that makes sense. So, and you guys are pretty adamant about re- like at least posting fakes and forgeries as you guys come across them. Yeah, stuff. especially as like if we can tell, oh, this person isn't only just selling forgeries, they're a forger. And we've caught several forgers. You know, we learn what their signature, t- you know, looks like because they improve. 
And then they stop selling on eBay, but they'll go sell to like a big auction house. And the person at the big auction house doesn't know any better because they don't know, you know, their signatures enough alike that they can pass it. Right. So that's that's kind of a problem. Um, so that's a that's an interesting distinction you made between forgeries and forgers, because someone might legitimately just have bought a forgery, know nothing about it, put it on eBay, and it's a forgery that is for sale versus an individual who is producing forgeries as their job, right. so to speak, and putting like them on You're eBay. paying their light bill. That's awesome. And you can generally tell the forgers on eBay because they'll do things like, you know, on eBay, you can have different lengths of time for auctions. So they'll do like a three-day auction. So that way they have yeah. less time for us to see it and it gets pulled. And they can put a whole bunch out in the marketplace in a very short amount. Of or they'll do a buy it now for like $200, which I, you can find good deals on Joe's signatures, but it's few and far in between. Yeah, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So uh, traditionally, like if I was selling something that I thought was valuable, I would want the most eyes on it. So I'm probably at minimum putting it at a seven-day right, auction. Right, seven to ten-day auction or a buy it now, which is how I usually sell my stuff because I'm not in a rush to sell it for one. So, you know, why are they doing these shorter sales? That makes no sense. And do they have a lot of Joe signed things? Like, where are they a big collector that you know of? Generally, we know each other at this point. So do they have a lot of signed items? And why? Are they selling somebody's collection? Are, are they a big, uh, you know, autograph seller? And like there's certain people that they forge like Mickey Mantle signature, J.K. Rowling signature, Michael Jordan signature, and they just sell those. And if I see people selling Mickey Mantle, Jordan, and Rowling, I generally stay away from them because those are just some of the more autograph signatures, period, in the marketplace or forge signatures in the marketplace. Okay, that's good to know. So you can kind of inform yourself by looking at one, their auction histories, and then what they currently have going right. up for sale. Right, And if they just keep putting up book after book that's signed, and they're especially if it's like a U.S. Order of the Phoenix signed and they have five, I haven't seen five in my lifetime that were real. So they're really hard to find, especially for $200. If you can't find five of them, how did they and get them? And that's discounting... The handwriting, like we're not even looking at the handwriting, which I know is bogus. That's just looking at the context clues. And would you say like currently are are the forgers getting better in general yeah. as time goes on or is it like a plateau? No, it's just getting better every day. Yeah, they're getting really, really, really good. There was, you know, one that and I don't want to talk too much of it because I don't want to inform anybody either. But I caught one just because. It was a dead ringer from one of her one of her signatures. The only way that I knew it was fake is because her signature changed drastically. So I guess to inform it, it was a soft cover Azkaban US that was printed in 2001. Okay. And the signature in the book was a dead ringer for her 1999 US signature, but by 2001, it had changed drastically. So I knew it could not have been signed in 2001. It was too different. So wrong signature style on the wrong date is, is right. something people can look out for. And the saying it was signed in, at Borders in 1999. But if you look at the copyright page and you knew the books, it was 2001 is when they were first printed, period. So the details of her story didn't match, but also it, it was the wrong year for the book. And uh, on your side, do you, do you have a listing of like those signatures over time? So I have it on my website. Those? 
I have different forgeries that I found around eBay. I have a video on my YouTube channel about five common JK Rowling forgeries. And then I have like different forgers that we've detected over time. So uh, as you said, especially right now is the season in which people really want to go and buy their loved ones, uh, a signed book that that feels special, but it's also the time when they're going to be the most forgery. So be yes. careful and be informed. And you can do that by checking your website. And ask me questions. I will talk to anybody about this stuff. That really is true. Okay. So uh, reach out if you have a question. Um, well, now let's let's move on um, to something else that you had told me about kind of in our pre-talk. And I wanted to get to this on the signatures as well. There's a yeah. hologram now. So what what is the, the hologram? The hologram was first introduced in J.K. Rowling's Deathly Hallows tour, both U.S. and U.K. And the holograms for the, well, they were introduced to, to you know, stop forgery. Um, and, of course, they're in her later books, like Casual Vacancy. Um, the Robert Galbraith books have holograms as well. And any book that was really signed at a signing between 2007 onward has a hologram. Um, that being said, somebody has figured out how to take the holograms off of probably some of the signed casual vacancies and put okay. it into a book that'll be higher value. So the forgery, it's a forged book with a real J.K. Rowling hologram. Okay, so so they forge the so they buy a cheap, a, well, relatively speaking, anyways, a cheap book that signs to get the to get the hologram, peel it off there, and then put it on a book that to make it more expensive. Yeah. Is that and how I it's don't going? know. I mean, I don't know how they're doing it. I don't, I'm not going to test it on any of mine, <laughs> but I do know like the casual vacancies are some of the cheaper signed rolling books to buy. Cause the book wasn't super well received. So less popular. So th there is a pro like, it seems crazy that they are just taking a signed JK Rowling book and being like, I just want the hologram off this. I'm willing to devalue this book. The The value there must be enough that uh, significant enough that they're, yeah, they're willing they to are. do this, right? To spend like a couple hundred dollars to, to devalue, to basically throw that book in the trash to increase the other book. So what, what is the possible net gain there? Is it like, you know, $200 to get this hologram and then makes the book worth an, an extra five or $600 that they have? If or? not more. Okay. So it can yeah. be even more than that. So they can spend 200 to make 500 $1,000. It's really disheartening. I've only seen four instances of this so far, but it really is just disheartening because that was one of the few things, even book plates can be forged. I've seen so many forged or copied book plates that I can't even send anybody there who just wants a signed thing and they don't want to really know what it is that they're buying. They just want a signed copy and the holograms used to be safe and they're just not. And now people are just set up for disappointment anywhere they yeah, go. Yeah, so you, it just goes back to you have to research. And you get to know the bigger collectors if you want to do Harry Potter collecting, just like you do anything else. Get to know the bigger collectors in your field because you need them. We've, Like I said, I bought forgeries. I know what it, I know how it feels. And it feels bad. It feels real bad. It feels awful. It feel, I would just remember how that feels in my stomach, and I hate. I know of somebody who spent $6,000 for three signed books that were forged like forgeries Ugh. and that to me just makes me stick to my stomach and it's been too many years 
to do anything about it. It's just six thousand dollars down the drain. That's awful. Uh, okay, um, that that's depressing. That forgeries and fakes are so prevalent and uh, hurting your hobby. Um, I'm not I'm not shocked because you know, wherever there's money to be made on fakes, you know they'll forgers and fakers will be there. They crooks crooks are crooks. They're just everywhere. Um, so that's sad. But let's let's turn it more positive uh, because it feels like your hobby has been growing. I've noticed it more and more um, just on Instagram, like incidental people showing it. I know like Peter the Potter Collector, like his YouTube channel used, recently just blew up quite a bit. And I see more and more now just in general as I'm flipping through casually. Do you, do you feel like the hobby is growing? I absolutely do because translation collectors are coming out of the woodworks. I've met people that didn't realize it was a thing until, you know, we started posting all over it on Instagram and they, you know, they've been at it for years or people are just newly starting to collect translations because they enjoy it. And it's a cheaper way to collect the Harry Potter books overall, unless you, you know, because you don't have the big outlay of like the first print first edition books that you get with Bloomsbury in the U S so, and they're so pretty. They really are so pretty. I mean, there are so many different German editions alone, so many different French editions alone, all bearing different cover art. So you could get so, like, if you just want to do German books, there's quite a few there if you wanted to do all seven. Uh, the same with the French. I mean, there's quite a few U.S., right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just a ton of U.S. covers now that you could get if yeah, you wanted. Yeah, the U.S. has quite has some. U.K. has so many. And then you have French that has a few. You've got German that has a few. Dutch has a few. Italian has a few. Japanese has quite a few. Uh, Mongolian has two different translations. Romania has two different translations with completely different cover art. Um, it's just it's really pretty it's a really pretty thing to collect and i think that's part of it because people see us post these different covers and they're fun they're vibrant they're pretty they're harry's represented in different ways in different moments and it's just a really neat thing to do and you get to meet people from all over the world so right now would you say this is a good time to get into your hobby or a bad time? it'll only get more expensive later so it's a good time now is better than later. Yeah, have you noticed a price spike in the last couple of yeah, years absolutely. then? When the Sturian has gone up in value tremendously, the one that's been so rare, um, has gone up in value tremendously from, you know, $200 to 1400 What did the you say Asturian, that was? The one that's the, um, uh, the Greenlandic, you know, in, in 2015-16, you could find one for, you know, 200 300 $400, $500, and now it's no, $1,500 or $800 if it's been super well-read. So it's only just going up. Books that were 20 are now 30 40 Okay. So it has gotten a lot more expensive, but it's still, you think in general, it's still an okay yeah. time to get in because the ceiling has not been reached. No, we're still just growing. You you heard it here first. Get in now uh, or get left behind and then do, do what all collectors do is uh, complain, <laughs> contemplate, and then cry when they realize the prices went up beyond what they thought they would. And they're they still issuing translations. The Hawaiian just came out, like, in August of this year. So you can buy it. And the first in the first release, when it's, you know, 1895, or you can buy it, you know, for $30, $40 later, a few years from now, when it's more expensive. 
it's Harry Potter. So it's not like suddenly Harry Potter's going to fall off a cliff and they're going to stop printing it. We've still got a bunch more Fantastic Beast movies and everything coming too. So it's going to keep, it's going to grow for a little while. There's still a lot yes. of impetus on this yes. to push it forward. All right. Um, and for you guys, uh, we touched on this briefly, but I, I think you said there are items that are definitely rare and there are valuable, but there's a continuum there of rare and valuable. Something can be rare and not be valuable and something can be valuable and not rare. Right. It's the same. Um, because, you know, in most cases it'll be rare, but not val valuable because there's not either not a demand for whatever reason, or it's just not well known about. So, you know, and which again goes into not a demand, but it can be, there can be not a demand for many other reasons as well. But if it's not known about, it's just not known about. We don't know what the market is. Right. So if it's never been established, how would anyone know? And I think probably the collectors, like big collectors like yourself, are probably still setting some of the prices on items as everything isn't completely defined yet. Right. I would agree. I would definitely agree. Because things are okay. still changing up. And, you know, what really kind of started setting the price was that big auction for the fine Philosopher's Stone hardcover first print for $80,000, $81,000. That's like a Keystone Media event that that make, made people outside of just your hobby take notice of this and, and push people into the hobby? Well, there was that, but it also raised the value on so many things because, oh, wow, you know, that went up exponentially. I was thinking, you know, $30,000, $50,000 max, and that was $30,000 more. And then you have the really, really beat up copy that sold for forty two. And that's just... Well, and I'm sure that got a bunch of media coverage as well. Uh, completely. And in fact, it started a whole different issue with what was rare and what wasn't that we're still fighting. As, and that's that's what I meant by like these Keystone media events that happen. And they happen in every hobby. It, it's some it's something that was so ridiculously priced, uh, either, either validly or invalidly, that sold. And it just got more people's attention than it should have it stepped outside of your hobby and into the regular world yeah made international news right so when that happens you it's just awareness like how do people become aware of the hobby how how does how does anyone know that they should be looking at the price of these things you get one of these things that happen yeah it drags a bunch of new collectors all of in. these articles saying how to tell if your book is rare and they're usually all wrong <laughs> yes You've got a bunch of uh, half-baked media outlets uh, that are going for, you know, they, they just yeah, gets clickbait articles. All right. Now now I want to just talk about a little bit about your collection. I want to wind this up. I've, I've had you here on the horn for almost two hours, and I appreciate your time. <laughs> so, But uh, let's, let's talk about what, what your favorite piece in your collection is. I have my favorite piece I've had since I very first started collecting back in 2010, I think, is when I bought it could be off by a year but it is a proof copy of bloomsbury's prisoner of azkaban and it was signed in 1999 by jk rowling on the title page or on the dedication page and that is really limited oh. anyway the azkaban and bloomsbury is a very hairy topic even when you look at the proof copies and what proof copies are is they were distributed to members of the media sometimes internally as well, to either look at typos, look at continuity of the story, and to get reviews for the book. So a very limited release. There were 300 of these books produced. 
of the Azkaban proof copies. And there are actually two different proof copies of Azkaban because of typos and such um, with two different covers. My The cover that I have that's signed is uh, the purple copy. Um, and there's one that has like a lime green cover and I have that too, but it's book plate sign. Okay. So that that's your favorite piece. And any other favorites in there? I know it's hard to choose amongst your children. Oh, I have so many. I have a, this wonderful set. They're not even rare books themselves, but they were signed. There's three books that were signed to Chloe from J.K. Rowling in like 2000. And Chloe had the chicken pop. And so we know this because the dedication on the Prisoner of Azkaban says, you know, dear Chloe, you know, I had the chicken pox last year. I caught it from my daughter. I hope you feel better soon or something along those lines. Um, and then it's signed. And then book two, Chamber of Secrets, is signed, you know, to Chloe again. And book three is like to Chloe yet again. And it's just really fun pieces to have. Like, I wish I were Chloe. Yeah, you have a little piece of history there sitting on your shelf. Yeah, she has she has some wonderful uh, dedications that she's done over the years. And you can just kind of imagine the conversations that had to surround that dedication. Um, one of my other favorite pieces is a it's a book plate in that it's a piece of paper that was glued into the book. But it was signed by Rowling in 98, so it has one of her earlier signatures. It still has the J.K. dot, which is hard to find. And it was originally um, a little boy went to a signing. He forgot his book, and Joe, being Joe, didn't want to let him leave empty-handed. So she signed a piece of paper that the mom went and glued into the book when they got home. I know, right? Like, just Joe being Joe, she couldn't let him leave empty-handed. And how cool is that? Yeah, so each each of those kind of dedications, little things like that, they just have their own story yeah. about them, which is nice. And I have, you know, I love so many of my things. I, it's really hard for me to choose, but I would say my proof copy, the Bloomsbury Purple Sunproof uh, copy is definitely my favorite. It was kind of the, the hinge of hinge pin of my collection for quite a while, just because I built my collection around that as far as like rare and fine things before I started doing translations. And maybe maybe a more difficult, maybe easier. Uh, favorite covers? Oh, good night. So before the new German translations came out by Iaco Bruno, the Asturian cover is so much fun because the color palette to me looks kind of like medieval art. I love medieval art. It's just rich colors. Um, and that's what this has to me. And what's cool is that the owner of the, the publisher, Trabe, is the one who illustrated the book as well. So I think that's that's awesome. And it looks similar to the Spanish cover, but it's still different enough. And it's just, it's wonderful. The font is so fun on the cover as well. You don't have any other Harry Potter books that have this fun font, um, or script rather. Um, and it's just fun. And then the new Germans came out and those are just delightful. They look whimsical. They look like a magical book. Um, yeah. And the Germans, the German covers themselves, before Iaco Bruno, the illustrator for the German book was Sabina Wilhelm, and she does fantastic work. Her, I love her renditions of Harry. She had a soft cover come out very shortly about the same time as the hard covers by Iaco Bruno that has Harry on a broom flying what looks to be like in Hogwarts with all the portraits, but they're fun. Her covers are fun. She's done all of the German all of the German covers up until Iaco. And uh, there's adult um, there's adult 
German covers that she didn't do, and then there's book clubs that she didn't do. But overall, she did most of the ones that Carlton Verlag, which is the German publisher, she's the one who did those for the most part. Awesome. Okay, so now we get in. Uh, and if this is touchy, you let me know. But, uh, you know, we're all collectors. We all sit around and moan about prices and obsess about about prices. So what what is the most you ever paid for something? Uh, $6,500 many years ago is that your proof because that sounds like rare yeah it was it was my first big purchase it was my it's still the most expensive thing i've ever purchased as far as like money spent um and i don't have a good idea of what the value is other than i can tell you what people are selling things at book houses over in london you've been collecting for about 10 years too so i want to caution people because people see collections like yours and from in video games they see collection like mine they're like oh my god I bet that costs so much money. How do I get there? And what do I do when it's time? The biggest thing is always time. The The answer to when you should start collecting was yesterday, right. three years ago. It was never today uh, unless, I mean, right now is a good time to jump in. Like, is it okay to jump in? Sure. But prices are have trended up, right? They've trended up, but also opportunity. I had the opportunity to buy the proof and the signed proof years ago. And that's been the only opportunity to buy a signed purple proof I've had. They don't just show up. So, right. you know, it's not only just time. I was very new into the hobby. I think I'd been collecting about a year at that point when I bought. Um, of course, intense research, blah, blah, blah. But I was very new. It's just the opportunity presented itself. And, that, and that's another thing that comes with collecting. The more time you're in collecting, the more opportunity to get rare and unique pieces will right. come. So don't worry about trying to get all of that all at once. Uh, I just like the cautious people. Yes, you'll go broke. You'll get burned out. It won't be fun. And at the end of the day, this is a hobby. This You're meant to enjoy this. So I, I always try to caution any new listeners, any anyone who's getting into any collecting at all, remember the end goal is to have fun. It can be expensive, but you should still have fun with it. Well, there's that. And then you get people who are like, well, you know, I want to have your collection or I want to have a better collection than you or Peter or... No, you'll you'll hear comments like that, uh, and that's disheartening at best because it's not about keeping up with the Joneses per se. It's about doing what, like what you're saying, doing what you enjoy. You know, collect. There's with Harry Potter. There's so many different ways to interact with the fandom. You can collect literally anything you want to, from different types of underwear to key fobs to lanyards, whatever you want to do. It's there to buy and collect. So there's no reason to keep up with anybody. Right. End of the day, hobby. Enjoy it. One of people's favorite things to do once they're collecting is what what is your best find? Like that's one of the things that drive us. You talked about the opportunity to buy that purple proof, but outside of that, what have what have been like some of your best finds? Because that's like always the moment of like I found this two hundred dollar item. I got it for ten dollars. Get to pump your fist a little bit and uh, celebrate that victory. I've had several. I found another Azkaban proof. It was the the green copy, the green cover with the book plate signature for $500 on abebooks.com a few years ago. So I snagged that just because a signed proof is super cool anyway, even if it is a book plate. So I snagged that and that was probably, you know, in the condition it's in probably $1,600 to buy at the time. So that was a good find. I still have it in my collection because why not? Found a first print Sorcerer's Stone you know, first print, first edition, Sorcerer's Stone for $7 at a library sale. 
I found a signed 21st print first edition Sorcerer's Stone for $30 online. Nice. So uh, it sounds like you can still find things in the wild is what I'm hearing rather than just trolling eBay or auction sites. Yeah, absolutely. You know, thrift books, not thrift books, half price books or secondhand bookstores can be a good place to buy. They can be expensive as well because they think, oh, it's Harry Potter. It's going to be it's a first edition Harry Potter book. It's going to be worth a lot. And it's just not. So again, it goes back to knowing what it is that you're buying. Okay. But it it is still there. You can still walk up to a garage sale and maybe find a good edition, like a good print, good edition at a garage sale and people won't know. They'll they'll have it priced at garage sale pricing. Yeah, absolutely. It's just not so common, but it happens. Still happens. Okay. And then um, before I let you out of here, can you just tell us a few people if we wanted to start collecting Harry Potter books right now, besides yourself, which is obviously uh, who I'm going to point at first to go follow, who else should they follow on Instagram or YouTube that would be good resources for new collectors to learn? Because how we learn is by finding out who the big collectors are that are active in the community and following them. So who besides you? I would say, you know, of course, Peter, the Potter collector who you talked about earlier, Melanie which is with um, the Harry Potter collection, and she has a website as well. She's delightful. Um, those are the two that I would go to for, and we all do translations. Peter and I really do signatures. Um, those are the two that come on, you know, come to mind. We kind of pal around, and we really do quite a bit book-wise on Instagram is really where we're the most active. We do, like Peter does a little bit on Twitter, but really Instagram and YouTube. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a visual medium that uh, we're working with pictures of books and, and games and stuff. So uh, Instagram makes the most sense, that and YouTube. Yeah. When I've got a Facebook page, I just usually forget about it. Okay. So the best place to, to find you guys is Instagram, you think? For me. Yeah. Instagram, YouTube, I'm there as well. Okay. And last question before we, we get into the little rundown here. Did you see the new Fantastic Beast movies? For those of you who are listening, this is the time frame in which uh, Fantastic Beast 2 is just released. So we're kind of talking about it right now. This Crimes of Grindelwald. Did you see it? Did you like it? I saw it Friday. What day is today? Friday. I saw it Friday night. It was delightful. I really enjoyed it. It's very different from movie one. Really enjoyed it. Okay. There, there you have it. She enjoyed it. Now, Carly... Before we go, obviously, I, I need to know, one, where do people find you on Instagram? At all the pretty books, all one word, with the at sign in front. All the pretty books. Okay, and what is your YouTube channel? All the pretty books. And what is your website? Alltheprettybooks.net. Okay, very easy, all very consistent. Is there any other places they should know to look at you from? or? That's primarily it for me. Like I said, you can find me on Facebook. I'm just not usually, I forget I have one. Okay. Carly, thank you very much for your time today. You've been very generous with it. Thank you for teaching my audience about your hobby. I appreciate all the insights and and the knowledge. Like I said, you gave us over two hours of your time. And for those who don't know, we had so many little hiccups and like had a whole show before this that we tried to do. So Carly was super generous with her time. If you enjoyed the episode, do reach out and at least give her a little hello and, uh, and thank you for that. And for me, thank you. And I'm Johnny underscore Ayuchi on Instagram. That's where you can find me. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. We're t-